Open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and the guys will get a, a Bible in your hands quickly. If you get a Bible from us, it is page 577. It's John chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 14 today. Let me give you the teaching schedule, and I'll get you through summer with this, or, or at least into August. We'll do it that way. Uh, we end the series today, the series titled, Who Is This? Come back and set that up, summarize it today. Next week, Mother's Day, and so we're going to take on Mother's Day and Father's Day this year, both of them, take kind of one-offs and deal with some kind of man's issues, women's issues, parenting-type issues. Then starting the week after, so what is that, the 20th, we'll, we'll start a series that will go 10 weeks, and we'll combine and look at living kind of in the context of in society and culture, integrating our faith. We'll look at the life of Joseph for four weeks, the life of Daniel for six weeks. So that'll take us into August. August, we'll look at the four G's as they relate to God, how good he is, how great he is. And then in September, we'll start our study in the book of First Peter. So that's the teaching schedule that will get us, I think that gets us through till Thanksgiving, maybe Christmas. So that'll take us through the rest of the year. I mentioned today, uh, it's the last of the series uh, entitled, uh, Who Is This? Now, this series was born out of uh, uh, our reading through the scriptures and, and seeing in all of the gospels, there's a moment where someone or some group of people is, is coming into contact with Jesus and either as a result of something he says, teaching, an incident, perhaps a miracle, their response is, who is this guy? So there's, there's individuals who have that experience. There's the group. There are the Jews, the Jewish leaders. There's the disciples themselves. There's a wonderful incident where Jesus and the disciples are out on, on the sea. A storm comes. Jesus is asleep. And the storm is, is just beating this, this boat. These are seasoned fishermen, so you understand it's a heck of a storm that has them so rattled that they wake up Jesus and said, don't you, you don't care about us, or what's the deal here? He says, oh, you of little faith, and it says then that he said to the storm, be still. That was my, that was my Jesus voice, be still, and, and, and still. And now the disciples were afraid. Now it says they were very much afraid because they're going, who is this guy? Who can control now the elements? And I go, who, who, who is this? Well, we, we, we've asked that question uh, beginning on Good Friday and, and, again, culminating today. Who is, and by the way, Jesus is the answer to every one of these questions. Who is this who died on the cross? Jesus. Why? Well, that's what we're going to unpack these, those last three or four weeks. Who rose from the dead? Well, it was Jesus. Then we began to kind of build toward this point we're at today. Who is this that exposes the darkness? You're in John chapter 3. Just look at verse 19. We looked that week pretty much at verse 19 and 20. This is the judgment that the light, that's Jesus, has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Why? Their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates light and does not come into light for fear his deeds will be exposed. Uh, Jesus is described as the light of the world, and we said light has probably a variety of functions, but at least three we talk about all the time. It gives life, 
nuclear winter, block out the sun, we die. It, it becomes a measurement, light years, speed of light, and light reveals or exposes. Uh, Jesus comes into this world. He is the life giver. He is the one that now provides us a standard of measurement as we talk about life and behavior. So it's, so it's no longer us just looking at each other and saying, well, I'm doing pretty well as compared to you. You're doing well as compared to her. He goes, no, here's the standard. It's perfection. And then what, what Jesus himself is saying here is that the light reveals. So that was our question. Who exposes the darkness? Who allows men to begin to see themselves as they really are? Who is the one that, that when you come in contact with them, all of a sudden, we see ourselves? Again, I go back to the Isaiah 6 experience. I see God for who he really is. I see Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, and my immediate response is, woe to me, woe to me, for I'm undone. I thought I had it all together, but not now. Jesus is the one who exposes darkness. Tim taught a couple weeks ago, Jesus is the one who knew no sin. So the Bible teaches that all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. So Friday night was uh, our granddaughter uh, uh, Reagan's fourth birthday. And so it's a, it's a cute event, and there's, there's uh, now seven of those grandkids, uh, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. So there's, they're there, and then, and then uh, Tim's uh, sister Tiffany is there with a, uh, a couple of her kids, and then another friend of theirs is there. So there's like 12 kids, and the oldest is six. And, and so it's, and, and, and by and large, cute kids, a couple, not that sure, but, but by and large, cute kids. Well, in the midst of that, now, now Reagan's old enough so that, that this doesn't fit, but Lucy, it still fit. I mean, Lucy is just, I, I wish I, I should have had some pictures of Lucy to put up because she, she, she I mean, she is just, she's really cute. And she started to act really cute. And, and as, as I try to remind Haley, she's so cute that you could forget what a sinful little girl she really is. Okay? She's getting close now to be able to say no. Okay? So then we'll know. Now, I, 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 now, here's what I want to do. And I'm not just playing a word game here. If you get this, great. If you don't get this, think with me because I want you to. It's not that we sin, and that makes us a sinner. It's because we're a sinner by nature that we sin. So that's why all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, because that's our nature. That's how we come into the world. Jesus now is the exception. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. It's not that Jesus sinned, but he was treated as always guilty of our sin. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus came in as the perfect sacrifice. That set up last week's lesson, right? John chapter 1, verse 19, behold the Lamb of God. What does he do? He takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died on the cross, and he took away the sin of the world. That doesn't mean every person that ever lived. When we, when we see that word world, it's used in a variety of ways in the Greek and therefore in the New Testament. It can speak of the planet. It can speak of the, the solar system in a sense. It can speak of, of every person in every place. Or it can speak of representatives from all sorts of tongues and tribes. Now, it might just mean Jew and Gentile. Jesus came 
And he's an equal opportunity savior. He, he saved men and women. Revolutionary stuff, by the way, in their economy. And rich and poor. This will sh- Here you go. Let's put it in context. This will get the emails going. Okay? <laughs> Jesus just didn't come to save rich white Republicans. Okay? And we got to understand that. Jesus came to save all sorts of people. Whosoever will believe. Now today is the culmination of this series. And I'll just tell you up front. I'm going to try to drive you to a conclusion and a response. Not going to try to manipulate you. Not going to try to use fear. I'm going to tell you what, what the Bible teaches and what the facts are. And then you figure out what you want to do with them. I'll tell you this. The stakes are huge. I watched the Kentucky Derby yesterday. I enjoy that. And, and so there's a horse. I'll have another wins the race. It's in the 19th hole, so that's way, way, way out there. And just the, the race set up well. And, and, and so it was Doug O'Neill's the trainer. So when we're in Del Mar, we see Doug O'Neill. Love Doug O'Neill. First Kentucky Derby win. And the jockey, this young guy, this young kid, first time, first time he'd ever ridden in the Derby. So it was a big deal. Stakes were huge. This horse that was a marginal horse is now worth millions. Okay? As big as those stakes are, they pale in comparison to the stakes for the decision I'm going to ask you to make. This is way, this is way bigger than the Kentucky Derby. Okay? Let's look at this passage from John chapter 3, verse 14. Jesus is speaking. They have a red-lettered Bible. I would guess most of this is, almost all of it's red-lettered. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, now start looking. You, you can actually see it back in verse 12, the word believe. Look at the word believe now as it appears. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Verse 16, probably the most familiar verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And that theme kind of carries on all the way through. Look at the very end of this chapter, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. And he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. So what I want to do is to take that passage and kind of put it in context and let the discussion on these first 16, 17 verses of John chapter 3 serve as our summary to this series and everything that we've, hopefully everything we've been talking about. So look back at John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees. His name is Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. So Nicodemus was a a pretty common name. In in Greek, it, it meant victor over the people. And Nicodemus, this Nicodemus is a Pharisee and a, and a ruler of the Jews. He's a member of the, the Sanhedrin. 
This was the council of 70 men who ran all of the religious affairs for the nation of Israel and had religious authority over Jews everywhere. Uh, the council was made up almost entirely of Pharisees, and under Roman jurisdiction, the Romans, by and large, gave them uh, authority over civil and criminal matters as well. So they had the, the power to subpoena, the power to hold trials. They were a very influential group. So Nicodemus is a member of, of, of the rulers of the Jews, so when we see that term, the Jews, often it speaks of this ruling group. And he's also a Pharisee. Pharisee was a, a group, select group of men, uh, never more or always kind of numbering around 6,000. Uh, each one of them would have, would have borne witness before at least three witnesses and made a commitment to devote their life completely every moment of it, to obeying the, the Ten Commandments. And this was a way to please God and to earn his favor. So, so I want to make sure we get this, because now, uh, again, some of you, this is brand new, perfect. Others of you have been around enough that when you hear the word Pharisee, you think in a sinister way. So it was like the old silent movies. If the sky came on, you know, and it said Pharisee, boo, that's kind of how you'd react to him. Well, that's not how they reacted in that day and age to him. They, they were the religious zealots. Uh, they were the religious fanatics. They were the one who took religion seriously. They didn't play around at it. They devoted their life to the fulfillment of the Ten Commandments and to bring that into every area of their life. And there was a subset of this group called the scribes, and their job was to study the law and, and spell out the Ten Commandments and then begin to apply it in specific areas of their life. So I, I wrote under this, this, by the way, is, is just true. When you, when, you, when you get a group and you want to organize it and you're going to have rules, you're going to get organizational inertia is the phrase I use. You're just going to get a bunch of rules. So you, you see it in... In business, all of a sudden there's other offices. How are we going to regulate them? How are we going to manage them? You see it in any structure, any organization. Checks, you start hearing words like checks and balances. Government's just riddled with it. So you pass a law that's a paragraph and you have 2,000 pages to explain it. That's what the scribes did. They go, okay, remember to keep holy the Sabbath. Well, what does it mean to keep holy the Sabbath? So under their explanation of that, the Mishnah, there are 24 chapters devoted to just the subject of working under the Sabbath. And then the commentary on the Mishnah, the Talmud, there are 50, 156 pages devoted to the, the idea of the Sabbath alone. So this is how you get carried away. This, this, but it's, tr it's true of, I'm just telling you, of any organization. It's true of rules. That's why, for me, this is just my theory of parenting or managing or anything. I would not make many rules, and the rules I made, I would enforce. But immediately, you want to know, what, what are the nuances of the rules? So it would, it, would, it would inevitably, in defining it, it would lead you just into absurdity. So I was, I was reading something the other day. Somebody was, it, it was, a, it was a, I think it was a government building. I'm not sure on that part. But it was part of the Disabilities Acts, 
that obviously allowed seeing dogs and all, seeing eye dogs, all that stuff. But this, this was a seeing eye pony that had been trained. And so now the person is, and so now we got a rule. And it just, it always takes you to absurdity. So, for example, for the Jew, they couldn't travel but a certain distance from home on the Sabbath. So that raises the question, what's the question? What is home? Because it's not just some place where I own. It could be some place where I rent or some place where I live. So it's to find it wherever I deposit my, my personal belongings, really of any sort. So the way a Jew would travel or want to travel on the weekend or the Sabbath, I should say, is they would just have a servant go ahead of them. And at the prescribed distance, they would just drop a personal item. So I could walk from this personal item to this personal item, pick it up, and I just travel. In this. this is how, that's how silly laws can be and rules can be. Because we're always looking. It's like somebody asked W.C. Fields once, do you read the Bible, Fields? And he said, only for loopholes. Well, that's kind of how we read these rules. What are the ripples? What are the exceptions? Don't ever park there. Well, what if, I'm, what, if, what, if, what if it's an emergency? Can I run that red light in an emergency? What's an emergency? Have to go to the bathroom really bad? Is that an emergency? I don't know. It depends on the officer. And is it, you know, it just gets silly. That's the Pharisees. And my point is they took this stuff really, really, really seriously. And once you understand that, it's amazing that, that Nicodemus would come to Jesus at all. They, by and large, this is a very strong word. Well, I won't even use the word hate. They were, at best, enemies of Jesus. And their whole mindset was, I'm working out my salvation. And I started by saying, we go, boo, but the guys in that day didn't. It was at one point where Jesus is teaching, and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you won't see the kingdom of God. And the people said, now I'm paraphrasing now, the people basically said, then we are screwed because that's what they do. They live for that. That's all they do is, wait a minute, we can't even sniff where they are. So that's the Pharisees. Nicodemus is one of them. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. Not exactly sure why night. We can speculate. He's a man of prominence and perhaps didn't want to risk reputation. Uh, and not just reputation, but maybe even the idea that he would somehow be persecuted for approaching Jesus. Don't know. It could be as pragmatic, by the way, as like Nicodemus and Jesus are busy during the day. And night's just a good time to have a, a long conversation but Nicodemus came at, came by night that when I I taught a series on John 3 and and er, and titled this chapter Nick at night I thought it was so clever I, just, I, thought, it was, I thought it was really funny you know nobody laughed rabbi now this is interesting again we can only speculate plural personal pronoun we we know now, I don't know if he's speaking for other guys or it's kind of that we and he's kind of hiding behind it. We know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So I come and say, we, we know there's something special here. Verse 3, Jesus answered him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Uh, John's gospel exclusively records that phrase, truly, truly. 
Some of your translations may say, verily, verily. It's a solemn affirmation. It, it, it's an expression that says, listen to this, I'm telling you the truth. I swear on myself, you could say. But this is, this is serious business. And then he says, truly, truly, here's my statement, unless. So whenever you see that word, we know we're setting up a pre-existing condition for something else to happen. Unless you have a ticket, you're not going to get in the game. So for you to get in the game, you have to have a ticket. Unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. So if I want to see the kingdom of God, I'm going to have to be born again. Now, when he uses the term the kingdom of God, it has different applications, but it's by and large here concerned with God's sovereign reign over all his creation. It's the idea of someone understanding the sovereign rule of God and who he is, and therefore submitting himself to his rule, authority, and his, and his lordship. John MacArthur writes, Jesus is not referring here to the universal kingdom. Instead, he's speaking specifically of the kingdom of salvation, the spiritual realm where those who have been born again by the divine power through faith now live under the rulership of God, mediated through his son Jesus. So here's what he says. If you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to experience God's rule, that includes, by the way, heaven, but not exclusively heaven. It includes moving into the kingdom of God now, his rule and authority. If, in fact, you want to see that, you must be born again. Now, right away, we, we get the idea that Nicodemus is missing the point. Verse 2 or I'm sorry, verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old, can't enter his second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? So Nicodemus is saying, this doesn't make any sense at all. I'm already old. This, you know, this is not good news for me, and mom's not that happy about this either one. Neither one of us are excited about this. Well, these are two planes. Like when we were flying back from Boston, I'm just kind of looking out the window and daydreaming. All of a sudden, I see this plane coming the other way. And, it, and it, it looks really close. What I know, if they're all hanging in the areas they're supposed to be, is we're at 33,000 feet and they're at 31. And no matter how much they fly, even if they, they can't possibly hit, they're in two different altitudes. Okay? Jesus is speaking spiritually. Nicodemus is flying physically. Jesus is saying, you must be born again. And Nicodemus is saying, how can that possibly be? Jesus is speech, speaking on a spiritual plane. Now, what's clear is he's saying, I need to be born, not physically, but spiritually. Keep your finger right there, because we're going to spend a bunch of time in John 3. But I want you to turn to the right. It's page 634. It's the book of Ephesians. Throughout this lesson, this series, we, we've been going back and forth a lot on the book of Ephesians. But, but think with me now the imagery of being born again. Why do I need to be born again? I had a guy in Priority Living, the studies I do during the week, and he said, I don't like that term, be born again. Can we use a different term? I mean, I don't like that term. It's got all sorts of baggage to it. I said, I'm fine. You can use another term. But do you understand it's Jesus' term? It's not something Jimmy Carter thought up. I mean, it's... it's you must be born again. 
Well, if I need to be born, it means I'm not born, or in this case, come to life, I'm dead. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. You were dead. Now, he's speaking to a group of believers. <coughs> so he'll use the past tense here. You were dead. And your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of air, of the spirit, <coughs> you got it now, right? That's working in the sons of disobedience. That's who you are by nature. In fact, he says, verse 3, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So he says, here's who you are spiritually. You're dead. You're a son of disobedience, a child of wrath. Verse 4, but God, so God moves, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Now go back to John's gospel, get this same kind of imagery in John chapter 1. John is telling us, that Jesus is eternal, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, the Word is with God, the Word was God, but he comes into this world, chapter 1, verse 6, we're introduced to John the Baptist, and he says, boy, here's a light coming, I'm to testify through him, he's in the world, the world is made through him, the world didn't know him, verse 11, he came to his own, but they wouldn't receive him, verse 12, but to as many as received him. So we're going to see the word trust in him, believe, receive. They're all the same idea. It's to trust, and we'll define it more later, but let's just get it out now. It's to trust in more than just head knowledge, but it's head knowledge and heart knowledge. It's to, tr it's to trust him, not just in an intellectual way, it's to know him in a personal way. So we might say, you know, I, I know I know, pres I, I know about President Obama. That doesn't mean I know him. I, I know ab about, I don't know, pick, pick an athlete, pick somebody. I know about Michael Jordan, but I don't know Michael Jordan. I know about Lady Gaga. I don't know Lady Gaga. Okay? I can know a bunch about Jesus, but not know Jesus. So to know him and believe in him and receive him trust in him. It's all the same idea. It's in him. So I'm placed in him. I find my salvation, my life in him. Look at what he says. As many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become, here we go, children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were not born, or who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. They're born again, but it's not a flesh. It's, 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 it's not a, a physical being born again. It's not even as a result of, of some will of their flesh or of the will of man, but this is something that God does in them. So, so we don't need to define that right now. Just want to get the issue on the table. We'll come back, hopefully, and tie all this together. So back to John 3, you must be born again because you're a child of wrath. You're, a, you're a, a child of disobedience. You, you are not a child of God. That's one of the great myths, obviously, that floats around in this world is that we're all children of God. We are in the sense that he created us all, but we're not all his kids. 
And he has a very special, we shouldn't be ashamed of this, by the way, he has a very special love and fondness and care for his kids, just like you humanly. So when I'm at that birth, birthday party the other night, there's a whole bunch of people there. But, but the two that I seem to care most for aren't even the grandkids, they're my own kids. So when my kids were small, I, I, I mean, this is theoretical, I liked kids, okay, so with all these kids, I like these kids, but I like those two right there the best. So, so God has this general affection called common grace for all men, but he has a special affection for his people. You must be born again. Now, uh, here's a really simple, helpful sentence, I, I think. Spiritual birth is something that happens to you, something you undergo. It's not something you produce. So what Nicodemus is trying to do, what the religious leaders are trying to do, the Jews are trying to do, it's what all religion tries to do, is to somehow get into right relationship with God through their own efforts. So at some point in time, and I think it's pretty early, we get a sense that something in the world is wrong. And then we try to figure out, how do I fix it? And as we become a little more sophisticated, we, we begin to understand that, that this, this is a, a God thing and a sin thing. And so we begin, by and large, we begin to put our efforts into resolving this. I'm going to do this, and I'm not going to do this. I'll spend time here, but I won't spend time there. And all of a sudden, I begin to say, okay, I'm going to somehow try to find a way to make myself acceptable to God. And what Jesus is saying here, what John the Gospel writer said, is no, it's not something you do. It's something that's done to you. Let's expand it here in verse 5. Nicodemus says, verse 4, it can't, can't do this again physically. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. That's which is born of the spirit, uh, flesh is flesh. That's what's born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I say you must be born again. So whatever he's talking about here when he's talking about that born of water, what he's talking about is something that's happening to us spiritually. It's not something that we generate. It's something that happens to us. And in a sense, it's inexplicable, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you may hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit of God. You said the Spirit of God works in a, in a very free manner. It's not in subjection to men and to our will. He's the potter, we're the clay. He does as he wishes, and especially in the area of salvation. It, it is stunning to us how often God moves in somebody's life to, to save them, and they're oftentimes the people you least expect. So that I know, I'll bet you do too, I know all sorts of men and women who were followers of Christ, who in disobedience married a guy or gal who were not followers of Christ, under the idea that they're that close to being saved, and I'm sure spending a lifetime with me will save them, and so far it hasn't worked out so well. We're very poor judges of this. I remember when I, when I, 
I, I was at a coal banker office. I asked a guy, I know you go to a Bible study, can I go? He said, yes, it's for anybody. I went. That was like on a Tuesday, God saved me on a Wednesday or whatever, the following Wednesday, whatever the story is. It was a Thursday, I guess. God saved me the following Wednesday. And I remember a week or two going back later and saying to him, why did you never invite me to that study? And his answer was, it just never occurred to me that God would save somebody like you. Now, that's the same way you felt about Charles Colson who just died. It's like we think God only saves people who are like really pretty good and they just, they just need a little, you know, buff out that little dent and a little touch-up paint. No, he's in the business of saving people that, that are not salvageable. And he does as he wishes. And he's God and you're not. He's clearly saying here spiritually, you need to get and understand that, that God is the one who determines, not you. Now, you must be born again. But God does that. Look at Nicodemus. He's not making much progress here. He says, how can these things be? And then Jesus uses, and I always find this to be an endearing quality in a Savior, cynicism and sarcasm. I, I think these are great qualities that, that, that he uses these. Are, this, this is awesome. Verse 10. Hmm. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? You're recognized as an established teacher in the nation of Israel? You're the one that people come to with these, these difficult theological problems, and you understand them and explain them. If there's a dispute, they come to you to resolve them. And here's something as basic as, how do I see the kingdom of God, and you don't get it? By the way, we can infer, no wonder the nation of Israel at this point in their, in their, in their history, no, matter, no wonder they're screwed up. These are the leaders. He said, truly, I say to you, here's what we're doing. We're speaking of what we know and testify of what we've seen. And, and you do not accept our testimony? This is firsthand stuff. If I told you earthly things and you didn't believe them, how is it that you're, you won't believe if I tell you heavenly things? Now, get this. No one's ascended into heaven, but he has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Here's what he's saying. He said, listen, I came down from heaven, and I'm talking to you about spiritual truths, and these are spiritual truths. This is the truth. I am the way, the truth, the life. I'm God. It's not that I wouldn't lie. I can't lie. <laughs> wouldn't think this way, but we'll just, I'm stuck. So we talk about God can do anything. Well, God can't do anything. God can't lie. God can't act contrary to his nature. And Jesus is saying, I'm giving you the testimony. I'm the son of man. I'm the one. You ought to get it, Nicodemus. My word, you've been studying and studying and studying and studying the Old Testament. They all point to me. In fact, he said, let me give you an Old Testament story. You're going to know it, Nicodemus. It's from Numbers chapter 21. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. There's this incident that recorded in Numbers chapter 21 where hundreds of poisonous snakes are overtaking and, and, and literally biting 
the nation, the members of the nation of Israel, and God says, take this pole and put a serpent on it and hold it up, and if they, as they look to this serpent, they will be saved. And, and what Jesus is taking that imagery and saying, okay, again, like the lambs that were slaughtered at Passover, that's a picture I'll be lifted up. We know in other places, when Jesus uses that phrase, he's speaking the kind of death he must die. He's saying, if I be lifted up and you look to me, you believe in me, just like they were healed, you will be saved. That's what he says in verse 15. Whoever believes in him, in who? The son of man. Who's the son of man? He is. You're going to have eternal life. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's a great summary of not just what we've studied so far today, but what we've studied in this series. But I want to I break it down, and, and I, I will confess I'm obsessed with this idea right now. I'm thrilled. The first night at summer camp, uh, I, I have the privilege of speaking of God and love and it and it's and and I was given the topics and then I noticed that 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 love idea fit right there and so I I talked to Justin I said can I do that and he said perfect it's great but but I want you I want you to see this when I was in high school so that would have been about 1967 68 I graduated in 68 the jewelry store in town, and they were all over the car. At the time, you're not connected like you are now. We're in Davenport, Iowa. We, don't, we know what's going on in Rock Island, but that's about it. But at that time, all over the country, there were different stores who were using a little promotion, a little promotion button that said, I am, remember it? I am loved. Really? Well, you want to talk about real love? Let, let, me, let me take you on a journey here, okay? John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved. By the way, we see that love is, is feeling for to be sure and commitment, but it's action. He loved, therefore he gave. So husband, wife, sitting in the room, in there for some sort of marriage, just touch up, repair, counseling, whatever it might be. You're talking, and, and, and you're trying to establish that there's a, an affinity here, a relationship. I usually ask them, how did you meet? I always like to try, I try to start with a question I think's a winner, because usually there's a story, and one or both of them will smile. And I remember one, one time asking a question, how did you meet? You just didn't wake up one morning and you were married, and the guy said, that's exactly what happened. I said, well, okay, we were... <laughs> It may not go that way. Maybe we'll come up with a new one. But how did you meet? You know, how, how did these things take place? Yeah. Do you love her still? I love her. He loves you. You know what's coming, right? He says he loves me, but he doesn't show it. Because we know if there's love, I ought to be able to see it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's how we know he loves us. Take a little tour with me. Turn to the right. We're going to see this idea. We'll be back to John 3, I think. I don't remember. Romans chapter 5. It's page 612. Like Ephesians 2, by the way, just a section we come to often, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it talks about all this. Verse 6, 
For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were the enemies, God reconciled us to God through, his, through the death of his son. Verse 8, God demonstrated his love toward us. How? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, I don't have the page, but we've already been there once, so here you go. I can give it to you. Page 634. We even read it. But God being rich, 2-4, being rich in, in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with Christ. We were dead he loved us how he made us alive. Titus, you're going to the right. Just keep turning to the right. Page 647. It occurs to me, and this is, this is for me, but I'll think it out loud. We talk a lot about Romans 5 and a lot about Ephesians 2. I rarely go to Titus 3, 4, but that's a great section where Paul makes, again, the, the, the same proclamation here. Titus 3, 4, page 647. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. What's his love for mankind? Jesus. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus our Savior. He loved us. How do we know? Well, his love for mankind appeared. Keep turning to the right. It's 1 John 3.16, page 661. 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, he said, here's how we know love, because God is love. We know that, but here's the manifestation we see. Jesus lays down his life for us, and then, to stay in 1 John, it's 1 John 4.10, so it's the next chapter over. And this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us, and he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And what's the manifestation of his love? The manifestation of God's love is that he sent Jesus. For God so loved the world. Back to John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we see that message over and over and over in scripture. So if you talk to people who don't know anything about Bible, don't care about things of God, yada, yada, and you say to them, talk to me about God, they'll almost always come down with at least two things. Number one, God is love. Number two, don't judge lest you be judged. Those seem to be the two things that everybody knows. So God is love. Well, what's the proof of that love? The proof of that love that God has is that he sent Jesus Jesus, his only begotten son, it's unique. It's one of a kind. It's not that he has many kids and this is one. This speaks of that relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. Though the word doesn't appear in the scripture, we identify it as the idea of the Trinity. 
God sent his only begotten son. So whoever believes, believes in him, will have eternal life. Whoever puts his faith and trust in him, head heart, who has that moment, again, not I know a lot about Jesus, but I know Jesus. There's that moment in time where I get it. I was <laughs> I just was never good uh, in school. Mark Twain uh, once said that he never let school interfere with his education, and that's kind of the way I approached it. I just wasn't very good. It was a lot of work. It didn't interest me. I was bright enough, though not bright, but bright enough. But I, but I did particularly poor in classes that required effort and, and, and that built on one another. So like math, okay, math would be a classic example of things I did poorly. Like in grade school, I kind of got my math tables. And then we got this business. Then we got the new math when I was in about fifth or sixth grade. And then I, I never got like X and Y and X over uh, just put the number in there and let me know what it is. I don't want to know all this. So then when we got to like algebra, here's what would happen. You know, if you didn't get like chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and you just jumped in at chapter 10, you're dead. And if you didn't get algebra, you had no shot at geometry. So I was pretty well washed out by my sophomore year of high school in this. So this never happened to me, but I had friends who had these moments where like in geometry or math, here's what they would say. I get it. Yeah. Aha. Aha. I get it. I never, I, I, I never, I never got it. <laughs> I tried to sit next to people who got it, but I never got it. To believe in him is to say, I get it. Aha. I see with, with more than just my eye physically, I get it in my mind and my heart and I understand it and I'm responding to it. And now that I believe, just like his love is action, my belief is action. I believe in him and I'm going to show it. I'm going to put my faith and trust in him. And if I do, based on the promise of God, I will not experience eternal separation from God or judgment from God, but I will experience eternal life. Eternal life has with it Quantity and quality. So every once in a while, somebody will say to you, do you have eternal life? Well, the answer is yes. It doesn't matter who you are. Everybody does. Because all of us are now going to live forever. The question is, in union with God or separated from God? In God's presence for all eternity or separated from his presence? There's a quantity and a quality to eternal life. Now, I, I wrote down, here, here are the three takeaways for this lesson. And for the series, number one, Jesus is emphasizing here the exclusive nature of salvation. You must be born again. There isn't any other way. It's, it's not church attendance. It's not this. It's not, you must be born again. You're not born again. You're not in the kingdom of God. He says it clearly in John 14. I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So the Christian faith is a very narrow, exclusive, and by that I mean it's the only one. It's a very narrow way. There are not many ways to God. There's one. It's through Jesus. I didn't make it that way. Luther and Calvin didn't make it that way. 
The church didn't make it that way. God made it that way. Jesus the night before he dies. If there's any other way other than this, let's take it. No, you have to die. Why? Because I have to believe in him. If I believe in him, I have eternal life. If you don't, you perish. This is very narrow, very hard, very exclusive. There are not many ways to Jesus and to God. Here's the second thing. Whoever, I like this. You you shouldn't have to write this down. Whoever means... Whoever, okay? Whoever means whoever. Black, white, rich, poor, smart, dumb, pretty, ugly, talented, goofball, intellectual, artiste, whoever. Whoever comes. In fact, we go back to John chapter 3, verse 3, and put your name in there. Unless... You are born again, whoever. Regardless now of all those things, family and all, but regardless of your sinful past, perhaps the saddest conversation I've ever had in my life was with a young man who came to Priority Living. And uh, it was one of those kind of gospel messages, very much like this. And he came up afterwards, he was just weepy, he sat around, I'd never seen him before, he'd gotten there, some, some, somebody told him something, I don't know, but he was there by himself, he didn't come with a friend, he sat there, sat there, waited till I was done, and you can, he's all teared up, and he, come, and he just begins to weep, and it's like, he must have had a Catholic background, because it's like I was his priest, he just started to confess, he just started throwing up on me, all these things that he'd done, and I mean, it's this, on top of this, on top of this, it's more and worse than probably anybody in the room, but I don't know, some of you maybe not. Okay? I don't know. It's bad. And then he said, here's what I know. God could never forgive me. And I said, hey, pal, here's the deal. It doesn't take any more grace to save you than it, than it did one of my daughters when they were age five. It, it says... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whoever, anybody, you, here, now. But I have, it doesn't matter what your past was. But I'm in the middle, it doesn't matter where you are now. We'll run into that. Listen, I want to come to Christ, I want to deal with this, but I got to clean my act up first. Well, you can't get it, it's perfection, you've already blown it. It's not about getting clean, it's about him making you clean. It's not about being clean, it's being cleansed. He does it. He does the work. Again, it's not something you do, it's something that's done to you. Whoever. I mean, he had not just sin, but, but the, and it's never too late. Well, I've blown it so bad, it's too late. I've heard this message over and over and over again. I've never come. Well, for whatever reason, God's letting you hear it again. Come. Here's the third thing, is that you have to respond, whoever believes. Now, we understand from Scripture that the response, the the belief itself, the faith itself, is a gift of God. It's not a matter of anything that you've done. So your belief isn't even a matter of work. It's just an acknowledgement that God's working in you. How would I know if God's working in my life? Do you want to respond? Do you want to believe? Do you see your life for what it really is? Do you understand that apart from him, you can't do anything? 
that it's time for you to run up the white flag and say, I give up, I surrender, I'm done. If you get to a point like Nicodemus, you're not going to get any cleaner in your life than Nicodemus in terms of actions, if that's what you're trying to do. That's what Paul says in, in the book of Philippians. You want to talk about like religion? I'm like the super one of those guys, but that's filthy rags. That's King James. That's dung compared to the surpassing value of knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If we look back over this series, here's what we understand, is that Jesus demonstrated his victory over sin through the resurrection. The sting of death is in sin. The power of sin is in the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus told the the scribes and the Pharisees recorded in Matthew 12 when, when they said, we want a sign. He said, I'll give you a sign. It'll be a sign like Jonah, like Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So will the Son of Man be in the earth. Let me, let me do one last kind of turn. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's page 624. It's the resurrection chapter. When we get to, to the book of Romans, Paul writes this. If we confess that our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We, we talk a lot about doctrine and what's essential, but apparently belief in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to, to you being saved. It's, uh, what those verses say to me is, if you don't believe in the physical resurrection of Christ, you aren't a Christian. You might call yourself one, might act like one, I don't even know what that means, but you aren't one. Here are the stakes, 1 Corinthians 15, 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Jesus has been raised. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, Paul says, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. See, the resurrection is a cornerstone of the Christian faith. If you're here today antagonistic or even ambivalent and you just want to have fun and, and kind of mess up the whole Christian community, all you have to do is disprove the resurrection. You want to destroy the Christian faith, boy, all you got to do is go, no, Jesus is still there. That's like when every, it happens every year in the spring. You know, they find a tomb. We found Jesus' bones. They never do. Why? They're not there. He's alive. It's not only important to the Christian faith. If you look at the very beginning here of, of 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, he said, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached, which you received, which you stand, by which you're saved. So here's the gospel that saved me. Verse 3. That Christ died for our sin according to the scripture. That he was buried and raised on the third day. Jesus died and rose again. And what we said today, or I said, when I said I'm going to push you to a response, it's to, it's to believe. It's to trust in him. John chapter 3 verse 16. He who believes in the son has eternal life. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe? Titus 3, 4, and 5, the passage we looked at. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which were done, but according to his mercy, the washing of the regeneration. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. If you don't believe in him, you don't have eternal life. And let me add this, and then we'll let you go is that eternal life not just begins today and goes forever, but eternal life is something that for us is, and this sounds so self is eternal. 
So the question is, if you're in right relationship now with God, can that be broken? And the answer is no. 1 John 5, 11. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and that this life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who doesn't have the Son does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the, uh, uh, of the Son of God, 1 John 5, 13, so that you will know that you have eternal life. We can say this based on the promises of God. And he'll never change his mind and neither can separate you. This is an act that's once it's done, it's irreversible. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. What I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth. And then here's Paul saying, any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The, the whole point of this series and really of all the teaching that we do each and every week is to get you to answer the question, who is this? It is to get you to come to the conclusion, not just intellectually, by the way, but to make that step of faith, that Jesus is the only way to salvation, that there's salvation in no other name. Do you know that truth? Many of you do, but some of you don't. And some of you don't, and you're sitting there right now, and you're going, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, let's get out of here. Or you're going, I don't know. I, I didn't get it when I came in. I've got more questions now than I did answers. Or I think I get it. I want to respond. Here's how you respond. If you're in that last group, you got questions. You want to respond. You want to know today is the day that you begin eternal life with Jesus. There are going to be a group of men and women in the front of the conference center and here in the chapel after the service, and they exist at that moment when this service is over to spend time with you. So over in the conference center, Justin's going to come. You've had your time of communion and, and worship and the lesson. Justin's going to close that service here in the chapel. Jake's going to come lead you in communion, and then the guys are going to come and take you through a time of worship. But, uh, but our prayer has been, as we, as we conceived this series, developed this series, and then presented this series, our prayer has been that God, especially for those of you that don't know Christ, that this would be the, a time that God would use this series to save you. That, that even, I know this doesn't sound like a very loving prayer, but it is. But that God would make you so miserable that you'd, that you'd respond. That he'd do whatever it takes to get your attention. And that you'd believe. That's our prayer. Father, will you do that awesome work in our life? We know that, that we can't, but your spirit can. We pray that, that many, God, if we had our wish, all who are in this room today would become children of yours through faith in Christ. We know that's a matter of the spirit, so we ask your spirit to invade hearts, change minds. We ask that of you in Jesus' name. Amen.